Welcome to Veteran Voices, a podcast dedicated to giving a voice to those that have served in the United States Armed Forces. On this series, jointly presented by Supply Chain Now and Vets to Industry, we sit down with a wide variety of veterans and veteran advocates to gain their insights, perspective, and stories from serving. We talk with many individuals about their challenging transition from active duty to the private sector, and we discuss some of the most vital issues facing veterans today. Join us for this episode of Veteran Voices. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us again on Veteran Voices. And if it's your first time with us, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Mary-Kate Saliva, and I'm with you here on Veteran Voices. Thank you so much for joining us today. I have an incredible guest waiting to gear up in here for a wonderful interview. Also, we're just going to do a quick programming note before we get started This program is part of the Supply Chain Now family, wherever you can get your podcasts from, started by our incredible Scott Air Force veteran. Today's show is also conducted in partnership with Guam Human Rights Initiative, a nonprofit that's near and dear to my heart. You can find more about them at guamhri.org. Now, without further ado, I'm super humbled and excited to have our guest here on today's show. Today, I'm going to be interviewing a Marine Corps veteran, Kevin Horgan. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kevin. Thank you for having me, Mary King. I'm super excited. And I know that this episode will get released a little bit later, but just for the timestamp that we did to celebrate a happy birthday to the Marine Corps. So happy birthday, Marine. You'll know that one branch... That one branch that I can't use in past tense. I, I people say they they were in the Navy or they were in the Air Force, but when it comes to the Marines, you you don't put it in past. Once a Marine, always a Marine. So I uh, <laughs> just I really I'll welcome you to the show again, Veteran Voices. You're as a first time guest on the show. Would love to for our guests and listeners to get to know you better. So would love to have you pump us up with a motivational quote. Do you have one for us this morning? <laughs> well, it's not my quote. I'll, I'll take a quote. It was uh, from actually a religious figure of the 19th century, a guy named Dwight Moody. And the quote goes like this, character is what you are in the dark. That's it. I love that. The first one to say that one, that quote. And uh, what does that uh, quote mean for you? Was it oh, from a, a moment? It, it's, you can be, you can do or say anything you want, but it's when you're alone is that when you're really going to be true. It implies that there are many who espouse certain beliefs, certain uh, temperaments, but uh, truly, uh, when they're alone, their honesty of purpose has to come through, or they're not true to themselves. No, I, I love that, and I can, that definitely resonates with me as I feel like I've gone through uh, multiple transitions uh, since I got off active duty in, in 2021, and there's been those moments of just trying to self-reflect on my true self. Who am I? So no, I really, I really appreciate that. I'd love to have our listeners get to know you a bit better. And I say we take it back, but not too far back because you're still a young Marine. As far as where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in New Jersey. It was great living in New Jersey. We thought that was the center of the universe. And in many respects, it was. The beauty of New Jersey, and everybody knocks it, it's a, a punchline to a lot of jokes is from any point in the state, you can go to the beach, you can go skiing in the mountains, 
You go to New York City that has some of the greatest uh, fishing and uh, uh, whitewater rafting that you could possibly get down the Delaware. So it is really an awesome state, kind of a corporate gypsy. I joined the Marine Corps after attending college. I went to St. Bonaventure University, and I have a degree in English literature, and it's where I met my wife, and we've been married almost 42 years. And when I got out of, in 1979, well, I guess it's incredible, but for me, it's gone by. The- <laughs> is, she also a, is she also a Jersey girl? Uh, yes, she is. Yeah. She is. Well, I say that. that. That's incredible. Good looking, too. And anyway, <laughs> so I joined the Marine Corps. Uh, I went in as an officer. I was an infantry officer. I served almost five years. I was nothing special. I was never shot at. Of course, like bull Marines, I deployed. And it was really, as a leader of Marines, it was a great privilege of my life. And from that, a lot of what I would call happiness that other people call success has has stemmed from. So I really have no bones about that. I have to ask about it, growing up in, in Jersey, because I have a, a lot of family that's still in Jersey, actually, more central Jersey and the, uh, I don't know if I keep referring as cow countries, like all the dairy farms out there. I would love to hear about what led you to join the Marine Corps? Because, you know, it's not the only branch, though probably bias is it the, being the best branch, but we'd love to hear how, was it, was it a billboard sign? Was it just the recruiters happened to be off lunch that day? Uh, wh- why the Marine Corps? Especially if you love Jersey so much, why leave? <laughs> well, my father was a Marine officer and he served in Korea. So that probably shaped a great deal of it. And I figured... I'd always had it in the back of my mind. It wasn't the forefront. I didn't do NROTC or anything like that. I had here, not quite as long as yours, but long enough. I was a child of the 70s. That's when I grew up, right? I got out of college. In 1979, economically, it was a pretty tricky time. Interest rates for homes, we scoff at it now at being 7 or 8%. It was 14% at the time. Inflation was rampant. Uh, you had, If you wanted gas for your car, you got in line. At a gas station, we had alternating days for fueling based upon the last character on license plates. So in many respects, it was, that's what we knew. That's what we did. But jobs are a little tight, tough, excuse me, especially for an English major. And I, I literally went to New York City on the suburban transit bus. I grew up in a town called Kendall Park, right smack dab in the middle of the state, uh, Middlesex County. So I got out of college. I, I spent a week or two goofing off at home, and my folks said, "All right, you got to get serious." So I put on an eighty-eight dollar polyester Sears Best three-piece suit. Uh, I got on the suburban transit bus. I took it to New York City, and I went to one of these agencies that helps people find a job. Uh, and that was a bust that day. It was just it was amusing aside by itself, but. At the end of the day, I was very discouraged. I came home, reported to my parents, and they said, that's nice. Try again tomorrow. Rinse, repeat. I got back on the bus, but I didn't take the express. I took the local. And the local stopped about 18 times before it got to Manhattan. We're only 30 miles outside of Manhattan, but it took take an hour and a half if you take the local train or bus. And uh, the first stop was in New Brunswick, and it stopped in the United States Marine Corps. And I looked outside and I thought about my previous day and I just got off the bus and I walked into the recruiting office. I'm there in my suit. I don't know if anybody in 1979 was showing up in a suit at recruiting office. 
And there was, uh, you know, a couple high and tight Marines sitting there and they were like, hey, how you doing? You know, they thought that was uh, the fly going into their web. And I said, listen, I just got out of college and I want to join Marines. And they said, hey, you're in the wrong place. You have to go to XYZ. It was camp. It was in Edison. I didn't have a car and I couldn't get there. So they drove me. They drove me over. Within a week, I had taken the test and I was scheduling physicals. It was a done deal. By October, I was in OCS. Oh, my goodness. It was a pretty, pretty quick. And all of those stories yeah. starting with the bus rinse repeat. <laughs> How were your parents at that point? Were they just over the moon for you or kind of a bit hesitant? No, nah, that's. I wouldn't say my parents were very much over the moon with me with anything. I was a bit of a jackass growing up. So my my father, I think he was amused. My mother was uh, upset and disappointed. But my father throughout this period now, between the months of July and October when I went, I needed to get in shape, at least better shape than I was in, which was terrible. I was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. I know it was only 18, but that's what I was doing. And I was generally keeping late hours. And my father would tell me every day, I wasn't going to make it. He said, you're not going to make it. You better get ready. You better start running. So about two or three days of listening to that, I started running at night uh, after I worked a couple of goofball shifts at 7-Elevens and uh, delicatessens and things like that, basically making $2 an hour, two fifty an hour, whatever it was. And then I just started running at night. And I was running in boots, which those of you who have been to boot camp or OCS know that you do very little running in boots for PT, physical training. I mean, you know that. It's in sneakers. That's what you yes. do it in. My old man thought I should be running in boots, so I did. And of course, my feet got blistered, but I ran through it. By the time I got to OCS, I could practically fly because we were running in sneakers. It was really amazing. But that was kind of the prep. No, I love that. Well, nothing like having your dad motivate you. Kind of a big kick out the door. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I'm sure you were grateful when you did boots hit the ground and you did start running because there's no shortage of that. And the Marines definitely have to like run the furthest when it comes to the physical fitness test. But I'd love to, if you could tell us about a bit about your time in service. I know you said five years. As far as the, the early stages go, where did you get sent first? Well, you know, it's interesting. Let me backpedal just a little bit. At OCS, I went in on October 15th. If you recall, in 1979, the first week in November, the U.S. Embassy in Iran was overthrown. Mm. And they held 52 hostages from the embassy. And this is during the Carter administration. And we went from, and just imagine Marine Corps boot camp and OCS being a little bit crazy to begin with, and screaming and yelling and push-ups and all that kind of nutty stuff. But after that, it went to... I mean, it went, it was sort of scream. I mean, everybody, yeah. everybody was screaming all the time. We thought we were going to war. We were going to be the first group of lieutenants to go to Tehran at the time. So it was interesting in that respect. So commissioned in December, in January, Marine Corps officers start what's called the basic school, which is Marine Corps officer policing from what kind of uniform to wear and how to wear it to land navigation, to shooting an M60 machine gun, to rappelling out of helicopters, everything in, mm-hmm. and everything in between. And they mixed it up to keep us suitably confused and, and generally on our toes, which was great. It was a wonderful experience. So that six months, and it's not a polishing school. It is the leadership school for the Marine Corps, to which I'm very grateful. Then I did a six-week 
infantry officer class, which is also in Quantico. So basically, I lived in Quantico for a year. After that, I was fortunate to have high enough scores to be able to opt into the first Marine Corps Scout Sniper School. And about a dozen other people cross services. There were Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, and the like, and a couple Marines, NCOs, and staff NCOs. So that was a wonderful experience. And that was for eight weeks. And basically, we were on the rifle range with our sniper rifles for four hours a day, which was amazing. And then we did other exercises and the like. So then I went out to the fleet in December of 1980 and was uh, assigned as the 3rd Platoon Commander, Fox Company, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, 1st Marine Division. And from that, we spent in a pre-deployment mode for about eight months. And then we deployed to Okinawa and Westpac, which was a standard. Everybody's first rotation then in the Marine Corps, and we're going back over 40 years, was uh, an overseas rotation. They they want to get you out of it. Oh, I didn't know that. As soon as possible. So that's what it was then. Now, I mean, we've been on a war footing, let's face it, for a generation. So it's different now, I'm sure. It's also different that they've eliminated the Marine Scout sniper teams. That's gone. They've eliminated artillery and tanks from the Marine Corps. So as the needs of war fighting and war preparation, I should say, because that's actually more important than the actual fighting, if the preparation is right, then you're not tasked with actually having to fight. And that's on a political level, of course. So we deployed to Westpac. It was Okinawa. Half the battalion went to Hong Kong. The whole battalion went to Thailand and the Philippines for a month of training in the jungles there. Uh, it was excellent. There was a lot of liberty too. Okay, I mean, I don't don't kid ourselves. I can't, I'm trying years. to picture what the what it was like back at back at that time yeah, over well, there in like Southeast Asia. But I I have to say, since you were talking about growing up in New Jersey, I was, I have been to to some of those countries that you've mentioned, like the the Philippines, Thailand, Japan, completely different than than Jersey. Like what you've ever been to Jersey. Uh, how was that for you seeing those seeing at least Okinawa and just being on that side of the world? What was that like for you? Was there anything that you thought that was like the weirdest thing that you weighed or the weirdest, the craziest thing you saw? Well, let me preface it by saying how we we grew up in New Jersey. We were in the suburbs in a a bedroom community, if you will. All the houses were the same. The entire town, all the houses were the same. They were three or four bedroom ranches. They were probably around 2,000 square feet total, and they were all on quarter-acre lots. Now, my neighborhood was not homogenous. My neighborhood had uh, Jewish people, Catholic people, Protestant people. I had black friends. We all lived on the same block. So we were already a cross-section of America before it was actually fashionable. We were the middle class. It's a shame we've gotten so far away from that now. So I think much of my anticipation, much of the things that I was looking forward to, going overseas, were born of stories my father said. He served in Korea, and he had a mix of amusing and awful, and none of my service was awful. It was just the anticipating what happened in other cultures around the world. So it's hard to describe it because we spent a lot of time on liberty, and the liberty, let's face it, liberty was not something, I'll I'll tell you flat out, not something we're really proud of. Uh, Our actions and activities, most of it revolved around drinking and screaming and howling at the moon and all that kind of good stuff. But the people that we interacted with when we were in garrison or in preparation for doing things that had nothing to do with actually uh, training specifically, the people were wonderful. 
I, I think there was an edge to the people in Okinawa themselves that didn't necessarily care for us. I think they mostly tolerated us. Uh, in Thailand and the Philippines, they welcomed us with open arms. Uh, we were a fixture there. Uh, heroic, I guess is the best way to put it. And I wasn't a hero. I was just a kid from Jersey wearing a uniform with a shaved head and getting paid to shoot guns. That's really, at the end of the day, that's what it came down to. So I didn't have, I didn't have a, an epiphany with cultures, except when I did come back to the United States, we live in a wonderful country. We are so, we are all very privileged to be here. No, it's like a very great insight. And I was really interested to to hear that because mostly this was a, you served at a time before I served and you're right, like how it has evolved over time, just our war fighting and what our capabilities are and what our responsibilities are. But I think that that one shared thing that, that crosses over that time is our first step into these new countries, into these countries that are new for us coming from small towns in America or in the suburbs of America, but he says that the melting pot that we have, but then stepping in where this culture is completely different and we're learning to navigate that as young service men and women. I find that super interesting, at least for me personally. So hopefully our listeners also <laughs> find that in tune as well. I'd love to hear a bit about some of the, the lessons learned that you had while you were in service. You come from not everyone had a parent or a loved one in their family that served some of them or first time in their families, but you had your dad. So just really curious if you had somebody in service take you under their wing, um, feel free to to shout their name out. But I, I'd love to hear some of the lessons learned that you had in your time in the Marine Corps. Well, I was really blessed to serve with wonderful people. The In hindsight, I look at it now and I was pretty immature for the task. I mean, at 22 years old, I was leading a, a platoon of 30 Marine and everything I did totally on what they did. You couldn't have a, a whim to do X, Y, or Z that didn't have a ripple effect, which was quite dramatic to the last man on the left. My my father, of the many things he told me before I went in, that were all true. And the first thing he said is, you can only do so many push-ups, so don't worry about it. You know, I mean, it's just it's a certain point where you can't do anymore. And he said, then you just got to do two more. So that's, you know, that's just one of the things he said. The other thing he said is, is uh, you have to lead by example. If you're not willing to do what you ask people to do, and we can say order all we want, but you're essentially asking them to do something that sometimes could be terrible. If you're not willing to do it, you're not leading by example. And, and that's, that is a crucial element. You have to live the virtue of what you're asking others to be. No, and I, I love that point. Both absolutely great lessons learned. Now, one of the things that really stuck out to me too is the position that you said that you were in at that time at 22 leading an entire uh, platoon. Because if, if you were to, to translate that with corporate America, like we don't tend to put 22-year-olds in charge of a, a bunch of people <laughs> just coming up um, in that way. And I think that especially because you were leading them also, again, from all walks of life, from with all different uh, specialities or even in a, in another country. So there's extra layers there that are new. So I think that those lessons learned really do help uh, someone at that age to take in what they're doing, that new set of responsibilities. Uh, I'd like to talk about the, the transition piece because I'm sure 
we're talking about like the, the five years can also go by pretty quickly at a blink of an eye. Did it feel that way then for you? And what was sort of the point where you decided it, it's time? You know, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that because I think that's pivotal to people that are thinking about transitioning and that are either or they're in the pipeline. I was fortunate. I do want to preface one thing. What Any successes I had in the Marine Corps was because of others, and all the failures were mine. And you had successes like and failures every single day. I mean, you just did. I did, certainly. So I spent about two and a half years in the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines. After the rifle platoon, I was given the 81 mortar platoon and the executive officer of a weapons company. And again, no great distinction there. Transitioned, and I still had not made a decision yet. This is, I'm at about the three and a half year mark. I had not made a decision whether I was going to stay in the Marine or not, Marine Corps or not. I was augmented as a regular officer at this time. Mm-hmm. And I went to MCRD San Diego, which was a billet that you, you got to do. You either do that or you go to recruiting. And I wanted to avoid recruiting like the plague because that might be the toughest job there is in the Marine Corps, being held accountable to people you really don't know and you can't touch every single day. So recruiting is, is brutal duty. Oh. But MCRD, the recruit depot, that, that's not a walk in the park either. You have the duty, overnight duty every third day. And it's from Reveille to Taps the rest of the days. It's six days a week. And sometimes and on Sundays, recruits still have to be supervised. Above and beyond that, not just the recruits, but the drill instructors have to be supervised because sometimes they get overworked with what they're doing and the promise of creating Marines. So you, you need to protect those drill instructors. About halfway through that, this is a very personal side to this. In May of 1984, I had not quite made the decision. I, I walked off the depot in August. In May, I had not made a final decision. And then a couple of things happened in rapid suggestion within a week. My roommate at basic school, Colburn Warren Hinton, C.W. Hinton, who was a pilot in his own right before he joined the Marine Corps, he was a good old Southern boy and Bible. He was always talking about the Lord. He he slammed his plane into the side of a mountain in Arizona. I mean, he's killed. He had just literally just gotten his wing. So that jarred me. Within a week, our second child, my wife and I, our second child, Daniel, named after my father, was born. And I also got a note, <laughs> no, a letter from a law school in New Jersey called Seton Hall. I think you might be familiar with that. That my deferment to enter law school was denied. And I had to go that September or not at all. After a little bit of introspection, I decided it was time to go. So I went up the chain. I wanted to resign my commission. I laid out my story in respect to attending law school, and they approved it, which was really remarkable. And they worked quickly on it, and I appreciate it to this day. If you recall also, there were some leadership issues within the core, within the, not I'll say the political class too. In October of 83, which was about six, eight months before these decisions, the barracks in Beirut was hit by a terrorist bomb, and there were 243 Marines and sailors were killed. And it was tricky for me to leave at that time, but it seemed to me if my heart was to make a career of it, then I really I, I had to be honest with the people I was dealing with. And they understood that. They, and look, they tried to talk me out of it. And there's some wonderful people who were involved with it. But I, I think they saw the sincerity of where, where I was coming from. So I didn't really make that final decision 
till just a few months before I got out. Now, this is the cautionary tale yeah. for someone who has an opportunity or yes. a lot of runway to transition. You got to have a better plan. What I had was I had an acceptance to law school and I had to be there at X state in the last week in August. So I walked off the depot, if you will, with a wife and two babies in California. And I moved into my in-laws base uh, a week later. And my father-in-law, who was also, by the way, a Marine, okay, which means he didn't like me at all. All right. And he had, he said to me, he goes, you know, my grandchildren, my two children can live in my house for free, but you're going to be $400 a month. Now this is, it's 1984. I didn't even have a job yet. So I start literally started going to law school at night, 6 p.m. on August 24th. And then at 3 a.m., I started loading trucks for UPS. This It was literally within 12 hours. And that that has been the arc of life since then. I spent 33 years working for UPS, working my way up from load trucks to, I was I finished off in a corporate real estate department. And it's been, it, it's been a heck of a ride. And I'm retired now, 60, how old am I? I'm 66, but I retired at 59. Wow. I'm a pretty lazy guy in general. So I don't have two homes. I don't have boats. I don't have fancy cars or any of that kind of stuff. But I don't have any debt either. So my wife and I managed to live within our means. And we have four wonderful adult children. We have seven beautiful, perfect grandchildren. And life has been wonderful. It's been very good. I, I love that. And I guess it was like the, the lessons learned. I feel like when you have your in-laws charging you rent, <laughs> that to, to get, I think between your, your dad and your father-in-law, they both kind of gave you that kick up the door to go, get, get, go start running or go start loading up trucks because you're not going to be living here for free. But no, it's, as, as you said, it was just like a, a testament to that work ethic that you had throughout that time. And you were fortunate enough to get an acceptance into law school. But as we know, like the transition can be very different for folks and they can still go through that transition. Because I'm sure at the time you loading boxes, that wasn't necessarily what you had in mind as your dream job, right? And I think that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves coming off of active duty uh, or when we're going through that transition to try to get it right by landing that first perfect job, like right out the gate. Um, so, so yeah, so I'd love to hear your advice if you were to, you know, speaking to some of our listeners who may be going through transition right now well, uh, about uh, two, that piece. Two things in that respect. It, it's important to note, and I want to credit my father who passed away in 83 and my father-in-law who passed away in 07, credit them among many other people that I've known in, in my career with understanding that I had more, I was supposed to, it was in their judgment I was sandbagging. I, honest, I'm mean, just being straight. It, that if someone sees potential in you, and anybody who's listening to this, somebody sees potential in you, that's because it's there. Okay? And you don't want to take yourself out of contention for something because you may have self-doubt. If other people who know you and who love you, and most people in a position of authority, like the parent and then a relative, a spouse, if they have faith, then live up to that faith. So I was very fortunate in that respect because like you said, it was the kick in the tail. Hey, listen here, this is what you have to do. And that was probably the nudge I needed to do to say, all right, I'm going to achieve. I'm going to overachieve. And, and that's really what you need to do. You need to burn that energy and capital that you have, whether you've done three years or 30 years that you get getting out of the service, you got to keep that 
fire into your next career. Okay. So advice for people, and I usually, this is a litany of advice. I always start with the very first thing. The very first thing is where, right? I've coached people with ACP and Hires USA, and I have a whole file of people that I've been coaching. Many I keep in touch with still at the years, and all on good terms, and they're all happy and successful and all that kind of good stuff. And the first thing you have to know is where, right? You can't just say, and I've had many people tell me, oh, I can work anywhere. Oh, really? Okay. Are you married? Yeah. You really think you can work anywhere, right? Yeah. Now, why don't you ask your wife where she wants to be? You have bounced her all over the world, or at least all over the country. It's about time that she has a say in where you want to be. And after some introspection, and it usually takes seconds, they always say the same thing. Well, we want to stay here at Kansas. Uh, we want to be in Georgia close to her mother. You know, all right. Well, that's that's where you start. You start with the where. Now, I know that the world now is everybody's on Zoom like we are now. And a lot of people telecommute. It's Telecommuting is here to stay, but it's not going to be the only way to do things. For instance, supervising people, and you, we will all need people to supervise and train, can't always be done on Zoom calls. It just simply cannot, especially if you're in a physically demanding environment. Example, UPS. People need to be trained and could supervise when they're handling heavy-duty work and they're working in a hard physical nature. So knowing where you want to land is crucial. The second thing, and, and this, is, this may seem a little vague, but you have to know what companies share your values. You, you can't just say, oh, I can do anything. Well, there's, yeah, I understand you can do anything, all right? Uh, but you can't do everything. You can only do the things that which you are morally acceptable of doing. If you think you're in an industry, and, I, and I'm not being disparaging to an in industry, but let's say there's a, a perimeter scheme. And then, by the way, are perfectly legal. <laughs> it's the Ponzi scheme that's not, right? But the pyramid scheme is that somebody starts out with a product, then they give it to people, have them sell the product. The guy at the top of the chain is still collecting and those kind of things. If you're antithetical to that and you don't see any uh, value that as a person, then that's not the kind of business you want to be in. So you have to think about what kind of companies share your values. And those values could be anything from, and I'm not, meant to, I'm not trying to be political, whether it's a diversity-based company, whether it's, a, whether it's an organization that looks at merit first, it's, these are all things that matter. They absolutely matter. Mm -hmm. Would you be supervising people that telling them to do things that you would not normally do? I mean, so those kind of questions, I know they're vague, they're a little, I'm searching for word right now, but those kind of things, you have to have a good idea and you can't have that idea until you know your own values. You know, what do you stand up for? I don't want to overstate it, but I read this very recently. If if you're not willing to die for something, think about it. If you're not willing to die for a cause, then why is it worth living for it? All right. So metaphorically, you don't want to die for a cause, but you would die for your values, all right? God, country, family, core, whatever the order of battle is for it. Uh, then it's absolutely worth living for. So that's where you want to go. That's how you want to What are you good at? What do you don't like? What do you like? That kind of, those kind of things. But location and values, those are the two starters right there. No, that's a, a great advice, great sound advice that really applies regardless of the transition. One of the things I, I tend to add as well is that we are still going through a transition. Even when you went through retirement, 
which congratulations there, even though it's been some time, but that's another transition there to see him retire from whatever it was we were doing on the civilian side. So I, I think putting that pressure on ourselves in transition is great pieces of advice there. And I'd love to hear more. I know you touched on on law school and the family dynamic. I'm sure that you eventually moved out of your in-laws basement at one point. Yeah. If you could take us as, in part as to the work that you have been uh, doing post-service as far as um, giving back to the community, because I know from talking to, to Scott, you continue to, to serve uh, beyond the uniform. And I'd love for you to, to share that with our listeners. Well, this and I didn't begin any of these activities uh, after retirement. I just had more time to do it after retirement. Right. But my affinity to service and service people is strong, and it might be I'm, I uh, say it plainly I'm biased towards service people because uh, I know and I tried pulling them into departments I worked with because I know they can work independently. They don't require a lot of supervision. That once trained, I can walk away and know they will hurt themselves trying to get the job done. But a couple of things that I've been doing, as I mentioned, I am a mentor with ACP and Hired Heroes USA. That's very fulfilling work. It's not incredibly time consuming, but what's important is that the people that are asking ACP, American Corporate Partners and Hired Heroes USA, and there are other players out there and they're, they're just as good. I think those are two of the best. Uh, they're, they're putting themselves out there and they want assistance. They want advice. Yes. They want suggestions. So you, you, you have to be very careful. The dynamic with a parent and a child, a child really understands or should understand that no matter what kind of pressure you put on them, no matter what you ask them to do, that if they fail, the parent is there with a safety net. In the mentoring-protege relationship, in a general philosophical sense, that there is that you don't have love in the relationship. You don't have that binding where the parents are always going to be there. That's not the case for suggestions. And at the end of the day, all the mentor can do is say, avoid this mistake. Okay. Mm -hmm. The everything you do, you're going to do. I'm not going to do it for you. I'm not going to give you a job. I'm not going to connect you to my best friend in local places that's going to get you connected with XYZ company. That's not how mentor protege relationships work. If a protege, uh, and the protege could be anywhere from a corporal to a colonel. And I've coached all of them. Things are much different in the civilian world. They're just much, much different. It's no longer yes or no, sir. Colonels are used to people fighting to get them a cup of coffee for crying out loud. And no one cares you were a colonel. No one cares if you won the Navy Cross. No people, they just don't care. They care. What can you do for me right now? What can you do for me that I cannot do for myself? And that's what you need to try to figure out when you're transitioning. So I do that piece. The other piece I do, and it's really, it's not a labor, it's it's a group. We're involved in Atlanta with a group called Vetlanta. And that Vetlanta, it's a club. It has no 501c3 status. We don't collect money. We don't, we're apolitical. All we do essentially is we organize summits, networking opportunities four times a year. And so once a quarter, we have a networking opportunity, which are very popular, by the way. And yes, we have some well content known. speakers. And it's a torture to organize. But let's face it, when it happens, just like anything else, everything running up to the party has been just miserable and wretched. And then when you get to the party, it's like, hey, I forgot the whole thing. It's been wonderful. You look over my shoulder, Vets Talk. That's just a, a, a thing I started with a guy named Charlie Scott when he worked with, with onto a different company. 
And all that is just a podcast uh, for people to tell a personal story. In fact, I don't even ask questions. I basically just let people talk for everything from telling personal anecdote to hawking their better-known small businesses. They need all the free publicity they can get. Vets Talks, you can check that out. And the other thing I do, and I really have to say, is I write books. Bed Bucks too that you see over here. This yes. one, this book is released Saturday. And this is a compilation of short stories, poems, actually. And a, a good portion of it is first person, and that's all fiction. And then the first person account of my brother and I, my kid brother's about nine years younger to be attending the New York Yankee men's fantasy baseball camp this past January of 23. And at the tender age of 65 at the time, I had no business doing that. It's kind of hilarious. So that's my, Congratulations. That's my fourth book. And well, the giving back part is interesting. During the pre-sale period of all my <laughs> books, I give 100% of my royalties, 100% to veteran service organizations and charities and foundations. And, uh, and all, all that's on and the exact amount of money I've given for the last 10 years on uh, royalties I've gotten for the books. Uh, all that's on my website. I itemized. Full disclosure, right? And then that really, I mean, it's, it's, no, I mean, it is because I I mean, I like that you mentioned the veteran service organizations because I was a a mentee and a mentor of American corporate partners. Um, great. And and then hiring heroes as well. And I just, I I love that you shouted them out and there's so many out there. Right. And and they all need money to keep the lights on and keep, keep chugging along. So no, I really appreciate that you did that. I did want to, to ask because I have interviewed colonels and and people that have served nearly 30 years and creeping on past that. And so it seemed a bit clearer as to why they wanted, they still identified as a veteran. But as we know, like some veterans don't, they don't talk about it or they don't uh, identify as a veteran. And and you served also at a tumultuous time in our country back then. And I would love to hear your thoughts as to did you ever at any point struggle with that identity as a veteran or has it stuck with you without break ever since? I never had a break. I did do reserve duty. I was going to law school at night and I was working full time at night and during the day. So I was sleeping four hours a day for four or five years, which was fine. I mean, I was kind of used to it. So I never broke from my affinity towards veterans. I was never really a military guy. Officer ranks, normally 30% of people that start off as officers retire as officers, which is really an incredible statistic, especially with a workforce, the entire military, that almost literally has 100% turnover every three to four years. Only 10% of the enlisted actually do 20. 30% of the officers do. And I think the number in the Marine Corps is actually higher. But that was never for me. Now, I have a lot of friends that I'm, I'm still in touch with that I spoke to as recently, and I'm in constant, almost constant contact with these guys. And there's probably a dozen. All but one did 20. I mean, all but one. And it's, it was amazing. And they had various uh, successes and uh, disappointments because there's always disappointments. Right. The, the military, in a, in a certain degree, is a meritocracy, not unlike the sports industry, right? In sports, you have to win, and that's a legitimate meritocracy. The military, I think, is second to that. You have to be able to uh, follow the process. You have to be able to toe the line. You have to be able to be creative. You have to follow orders, all those things that go with it. So to people that are transitioning now, those kind of intrinsic values of being not only part of the team, but leading the team. You have to take that with you into 
uh, the civilian environment. Now, one thing I learned, and I kind of learned this lesson brutally, the, the first thing I would say is you can't mock a business if you've been under fire in your, your service, all right? Because there, when I first got to UPS, and I know this meant a misloads, which is putting the wrong package in the wrong vehicle. Um, it was like, it was a crisis. I mean, people were losing their minds. People were screaming, making phone calls, all kinds of things before cell phones. And people were going nuts over something that I thought, this is silly. Right, we'll right. fix it. We'll just, you know, we'll, we'll just fix it. Because even though I had never been shot at, I understood the gravity. Uh, but civilian bosses don't like to be mocked. So you don't want to laugh at their uh, notion right. of a crisis. You want to, oh, you think it's a crisis, boss? You got it. It's a crisis. I'm going to take care of it. All right. We used to and say that about the medics because, you know, I've, I've spoken and interviewed uh, and I was a, a medic when I first came in as well. But th there's a bit of dark humor that goes in with <laughs> what we do because we go through the suck together. And when and there are some dark days, but there's like a way that we end up flipping that around. where We're able to laugh about it or turn it into comedy, especially when you're doing it with a, with as a collective brothers and sisters. But I was really interested in your perspective on that because you've devoted so much of your life to supporting giving back in the veteran community. So I, I was really interested to hear about that. So I, I'd love to, as far as, uh, unfortunately, because I'd love to talk to you all day about this, that we should end up wrapping up our episode, but I'd love to, if you had some thoughts for our listeners as to how they can get involved with some of the work that that you're doing, whether it's with Vetlana or American Corp Partners, Hiring Our Heroes, and, and any final thoughts that you have. I, I Thank you. I, first, if you're transitioning, you should be taking advantage of anything in the military that allows you to get a helpful transition. And there are lots of programs, of, and you have to be eligible, and you have to have the right timing and all that good stuff. And you have to know where you want to be, and you have to know what kind of business you might want to be in. But if the military is willing to offer you space for transitioning and an opportunity to check out what the civilian markets have to offer, you got to take full advantage of that. And it's different with varying degrees of success, depending upon where you are. I can't really cherry pick that for you. You have to make your own good judgment. So, I, that, I mean, that's the first thing. The second thing is during this transition, as we mentioned, you want to know where you want to be and what you want to do. You're looking for an opportunity. If you're in that transition phase, the people that are helping you will be able to tell you what you could do right. and where to go. If you're in the Atlanta area specifically, check out Atlanta. We don't ask for it. We have like three or 4,000 members, but there's only three or four people that actually do all the work all the time. So I feel like that's everywhere, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that is everywhere. It's absolutely. It's absolutely. And because people can be, with volunteers especially, they can be brutal with them because once they find a volunteer, they think they got the hook set. They don't understand. They forget that volunteers can walk away anytime they want. Yes. And it might be necessary to do that. You have to take care of yourself first. Take care of your own house. And one thing I, I noticed, my face is being red because I got a space heater. <laughs> I got a space heater in my office. My office is above the garage and it's cold. So I'm either going to freeze to that or cook. So right now I'm cooking. Just pointing it out. Well, I also go with this. I said, happy birthday, Maureen, earlier. This episode <laughs> is is uh going live in the colder months so and i just i appreciate the advice that you gave us today because i love veteran voices for the fact of being able to interview veterans like yourself who are continuing to serve and you've devoted essentially a lifetime of service beyond the uniform in many capacities and the other thing that i love is how you 
you were so transparent about your age because, you know, people tend to keep that close. But it just goes to show, like you talked about the, the books that you published. I mean, I, I, I talked to so many service members in transition who were like, I'd love to write a book. Or they, and they just don't know how to go about it or even starting a podcast. And there's really, I love to add that there's really no expiration date on doing any of those things, right? Well, while we still have air in our lungs to be able to, and while we're still able to do it, to why not? And, and like you said, to have surround yourself with those network of people uh, that will, will continue to cheer you on and help show you the path. And, and part of doing that is putting ourselves out there, getting to those networking events like at Vetlana. So thank you so much, Kevin, for uh, joining me today. Um, how can our, our listeners get a hold of you, uh, reach out if they have any further questions? Well, hopefully there will be a blurb somewhere when this gets produced that will give my email addresses. I sell books there on Amazon. But the key website for me is kevinhorganbook.com. In my most recent book, I have three more. I'm actually, my sister-in-law, we're doing a children's book, and that should come out in a couple of weeks, too, an illustrated children's book. So kevinhorganbooks.com is fine. My email address, the best one, khorg13 at gmail.com, khorg13 at gmail.com. And they can contact me anytime they want. I My stuff's all over LinkedIn. It's on all the other media posts. I'm an open book, phone number, heck, my, even, even my address. You know, there you have it. <laughs> thank you, Kevin. Again, I just love your uh, openness uh, and transparency. So thank you again. On behalf of Veteran Voices, so grateful and honored to have you as a guest. Uh, and thank you to all our listeners for joining us, whether you're uh, a returning listener. We hope to see you next time here on Veteran Voices. Again, I'm your host, Mary-Kate Saliva, and we'll hope to see you next time. Again, we're a proud uh, partnership with the Guam Human Rights Initiative, where you can learn more about them at guamhri.org and part of the Supply Chain Now family. So again, as I always say, do good and be the change that's needed. We'll see you all next time. <music>